go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11. We return again to this epoch of God's redemptive plan to bring about the salvation of his people through the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. How relevant that is to our passage this morning, we will see, but we now see it immediately in our context where God is dealing with the Israelites by dealing with the Egyptians or the gods of the Egyptians showing that he is the sovereign ruler over all his creation, not just that which can be seen, but even especially that which can be not seen in the spiritual realms over every power and every principality, so that any work done by the magicians and the diviners of Egypt are done according to his sovereign will, not his prescriptive will for what they do is evil and wicked, but his sovereign will and that he still is working in those things for his good and awesome purposes, which here we see is his gracious care and preservation of his people. So that at the sight of the wonders of his mercy, they may rejoice in the Lord and ultimately take refuge in Christ. Follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of Egypt of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there was has not been before, and such shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. Yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again this morning. Oh, Lord, we come before you as we have read your word. Now we ask that by your spirit, it would be blessed to us through your preaching. That the words of this clay vessel would be words in tune and in line with your word so that they may carry the power of your spirit to affect the hearts of your people, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also, rejoicing in your salvation. We give you praise and we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we have been and we continue to these next few weeks to examine Pharaoh's question in chapter 5. 
where he asked, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? We're here at the beginning and the introduction to this last plague, the 10th plague. And we find what a treacherous and terrible question Pharaoh asked in chapter 5. For it was all culminating and leading to this 10th plague. And oh, how the Lord has answered this question. He's taken nine plagues so far in our narrative, in our reading of it, to answer that question. And it should have been enough. It should have been enough when the Nile was turned to blood or the flies and gnats came upon the people, the frogs coming out of the water, boils upon their skin. If that wasn't enough, great hailstones falling from the sky, destroying their crop and their livestock and even some of their servants. And if that wasn't enough, surely days of darkness should have dawned upon their hearts, especially Pharaoh's heart, to see that it is Yahweh who is the one true and living God. But such was not the will of God for his awesome purposes. For it says the Lord had hardened Pharaoh's heart, certainly not forcing Pharaoh to turn from him, but agreeing with Pharaoh's wayward heart, his heart, Pharaoh hardening his own heart also. And so leading to this 10th plague, one more to demonstrate his sovereign rule. A terrible plague that we will examine in short today and more in the coming weeks. Today, dealing with some of the harder questions relating to it. But we see that as we have been seeing the arrangement of these plagues, this being the third of three or, or the, thir the, th the three threes having finished. Now here, one more. One more plague one more blow on Pharaoh and Egypt. After three cycles of signs and wonders, Yahweh brings his final blow all the way into the house of Pharaoh upon his very son. This morning, I hope we see that the Lord continually reminds the believer that their hope is to be in the Lord and not in the bare inheritance we certainly hope in the inheritance we have in God and in Christ but our hope is to be in the Lord alone not in what we receive from him but in the Lord himself we'll see this as we go through our passage this morning under three headings under recall righteousness and redemption we start with Recall because the passage opens with a throwback to previous revelation. This chapter is set up as both continuation and recall. It's continuation as it gives greater context to Moses and Aaron's last interaction with Pharaoh there at the end of the ninth plague. And recall as it clearly connects back to God's telling he will display his greatness through Redemption was the plague of death on the firstborn and the resulting exodus of Israel from Egypt was not merely an event, an event in itself, but the culmination or culminating act of a long process controlled by God and brought to fruition exactly as he had predicted it before any of the process had started. You see, this wasn't a 10-round fight between God and the God's of, of Egypt, nor was it between God and Pharaoh. God, God didn't say, let me try this, and if it doesn't work, I'll try that, and so on and so forth, and now he's saying, and now he's not saying that after I tried all these other ways, maybe one more will work. No, we're going to see that when the Lord had determined to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, he had determined the death 
of the firstborn. And it goes even back beyond our immediate context, or our near context in Exodus 3, which we will see. It goes back to the beginning. Turn with me to Genesis. We train, hopefully we're, we're training our minds and our thoughts on scripture, that the context of every scripture is every scripture. That we will find that the Lord, as he reveals his redemption in Christ through his special revelation of his word, does so progressively, building upon previous revelation, but previous revelation anticipating subsequent or later revelation, such that we go back and we see where the Lord was already depositing his truth in his word and in history beforehand. We know that the Lord creates heavens and earth, and he creates man especially in his own image, and he, and he covenants with Adam, proffering him a better existence than he has. He lives in uprightness and perfection in the garden, and the Lord says, I have something better to offer you. And he makes a covenant with Adam such that at the obedience at his, at his fulfillment of that covenant, both Adam and all his progeny, all his uh, descendants, would enjoy not just bliss, but eternal bliss. And not just perpetual golf outings or movies or whatever you do that you, would, that you just love to do. It's not just that. It's actual communion, unstained communion with the Lord forever but we know that adam falls he he fails his test he sins taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and yet in the midst of that the lord in cursing the serpent provides his promise of redemption in genesis 3:15 in 14, it says, the Lord God said to the serpent. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. There we find this proclamation of the gospel in seed form before us in Genesis 3:15. The seed of the woman is promised. The firstborn begins here. For when Eve gives a birth, she says, Surely God has provided me a son. She caught on that the Lord would provide through her offspring this seed, assuming it to be a firstborn. But there was more to be revealed. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, we read of the corruption of mankind, that all their thoughts, all their deeds were evil, perpetually, continually. And yet we read in Genesis 6.13, Then God said to Noah, well, we actually read before it that Noah finds favor in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Grace was given to Noah among all other men. And in verse 13, he tells Noah that the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. And then in verse 17, he says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Consider the flood this morning, consider God destroying all flesh in which is the breath of life. 
you know, it's uh, kind of humorous, but in a kind of morbid way. Uh, people have pointed out that a very, uh, usually what adorns the rooms of uh, kids' school rooms or kids' Sunday school classes is Noah and his ark and the rainbow. And if it expanded or if they included the rest of the scene, there would be a sea full of death where all flesh is judged by God in a flood of water. This morning we're thinking about God's proc uh, proclamation that he will bring death to all the firstborn sons of Egypt. Infant or of age. He will bring death upon Egypt. We have to think about these things and ponder them and wonder at them. For these are the things that the world does not understand. These are the things that the world wants to push back at us and say, what kind of God would kill every living thing? They dismiss the flood. They say, well, there was never a global flood, so we're going to dismiss the flood, look past that. We're going to dismiss even the plagues because that's supernatural, and we definitely don't hold to that. We, we won't look at it this morning, but fast forward to when Joshua leads in battle the people of Israel. They look to that, and they see more of a historical narrative, so they're willing to accept it, and the Lord commanding Joshua to put to death every man woman, and child. Brothers and sisters, we must consider this in light of Scripture. Lest we move God away from his sovereign rule and place him into something that is more palatable to our senses, something more akin to a Santa Claus or a teddy bear or something that we can just comfort into and just never have to be rustled in our thoughts about a God who judges the wicked. A God who cannot stand his presence to be corrupted by any shred of impurity. It continues on. Go to Genesis 15. I was thinking about this sermon and thinking about a nice illustration I could have started with that we didn't have to just jump right into the deep end. And I apologize. We are in the deep end from the beginning. Hopefully we're going to we'll get our way out by the end. But I recognize that we're going to start heavy and we're going to come to the light in the end but Genesis 15 Abraham is promised a son in Genesis 15 and Genesis 15 13 God said to Abraham or Abram know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve and afterward, they will come out with many possessions. What do we see here? We see God telling Abram his plan. Such that Israel coming into Egypt by way of providence through Joseph, which we will see in, in a minute, was a part of God's plan to redeem Israel out of Egypt. Not because he in some despotic, perverted pleasure, wants to see the death of the firstborn, but because he's telling of the coming of the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and whose heel will be struck by the serpent. And so he tells Abram in, in this vision, he, as Ab Abram has fallen asleep, that his people will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and oppressed. But the Lord will judge that nation whom they serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. 
turn now to Genesis 19. We know the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that scripture speaks of Lot being oppressed there, though still dwelling amongst them. We know it is by Abraham's intercession that Lot is delivered. And we see the means as the angels come and visit Lot. And these two men say to Lot, whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city. Bring them out of that place. For we are about to destroy this place. Because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Every man, woman, and child will be destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Except Lot and those that would be convinced by him to seek shelter from the city. And if we, we see, if we were to read on, we would see Lot, even Lot hesitates and doesn't want to go. And they have to grab Lot and say, no, we are going now. And then we find Lot's wife looking back, thinking of what she had possibly and becoming a pillar of salt, a testimony to God's righteous indignation over sin. Now we get to though skipping over much to be said about God's deliverance of Joseph in Egypt, granting him favor before Pharaoh, delivering Egypt from famine and certain death through the sending of him ahead of time. We now get to Exodus chapter 3. Moses there at the burning bush. The Lord saying to Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion, Exodus 3.19. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the, the Egyptians and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. Here we find the Lord telling Moses that it will be under great compulsion that they will be delivered out of Egypt. Ten blows, nine of which anticipating the tenth. Even amongst that ninth one that we're talking about chronologically, the Lord speaking through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, which we will see, it's in the midst or at least shortly after darkness for three days that the Lord will warn Pharaoh of his coming judgment yet again. Yet here in this 10th plague, the Lord doesn't destroy or doesn't bring, doesn't, doesn't uh, judge every man, woman, and child as he had done in Sodom and Gomorrah as he did in the flood. He's choosing now to interact this judgment with just the firstborn sons of Egypt. Why the firstborn? Why the firstborn sons? First, we see in Exodus 4.22, the Lord calling Israel his firstborn. Israel is, in typological uh, way, the firstborn son of God. God calls Israel his firstborn. And how has how have the Egyptians treated his firstborn? All Egypt had been involved in exploiting the Lord's firstborn. 
and because they had specifically refused to accord them the fundamental right of worshiping the Lord as he required, it was every firstborn in the land that was going to fill the blow. As we will further see in subsequent weeks, added on to this idea of firstborn is because it will be a testimony to the Israelites, an establishment of the festival of Passover, the redemption of the firstborn would be remembered through all the time of Israel. For God was going to send another firstborn, his very own son, who would receive this penalty on behalf of the Israelites. We'll see that the Israelites deserve the same punishment as the Egyptians. What about the firstborn of Pharaoh's house specifically? As noted last week, in Egypt, the sun was worshipped under the title of Ra, and it was understood that Pharaoh himself derived his title from this god. And in the case of the firstborn son of Pharaoh, it was the future of the whole nation that was involved. When his father died, he would become the incarnation of the god Horus and ascend the throne as the divine ruler of Egypt. His premature death would be a blow to the whole political and religious system of the land. It would be a final blow to the Egyptians where the Lord had destroyed and had been destroying their false gods, but he'd also been destroying their economy. He'd been destroying, in some ways, their health and their livelihood. Now he was going to destroy their very political and religious system, for he was going to remove from them their firstborn son. One who would have risen into the throne and proclaimed himself to be a son of the gods. Here's before us the recall in our passage in Exodus 11 when the Lord says one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh in Egypt and after that he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, you shall surely drive, he shall surely drive you out from here completely. And then asking them, to borrow or to, to ask from each of his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. Tribute for a defeated people. When an army goes into battle and is defeated, that army that is defeated is, is required to pay tribute to the army who defeated them or to the nation that defeated them. Here the tribute was to be given to the Israelites for the Egyptians will be defeated before them. It's for the Egyptians to see that the God of the Hebrews is the one true and living God and it's for the Israelites to be confirmed that the one who is calling them out of Egypt is the one who has power over every part of his creation. As we look at this idea where God has been laying down these tracks of, uh, of revelation, whereby we're able to see God's plan to bring about the death of the firstborn here in Exodus 11, we now weigh it before us as best we can. And for that, we don't weigh it in light of God's severity per se, but we weigh it in light of God's righteousness. This last blow was a more, had a more direct tone to it. Previously, Yahweh had called, caused all the plagues but in the case of those plagues caused by insects, Yahweh had produced the insects and they had gone throughout the land doing the intended harm. Now Yahweh himself, the immediate performer of the plague, the immediate visitor of the homes of the Egyptians. The further descriptions of the actual plague as it was carried out in chapter 12 emphasize God's direct role several more times. You see the locusts ate up the, all the crop. The hail was the, was the hail, and it struck 
the people and the cattle and the crop. Here there is no way to account for it except it is the Lord that will strike the firstborn sons of Egypt. Certainly for the Israelites to see that they are being delivered to serve the one true and living God. Something that they needed. Turn to Joshua 24. We're going to see in Joshua 24 that the Israelites are only Israelites are favored of God because of his choice. In Joshua 24, we know Joshua 24 well. Where in verse 15, he says, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. But look at before and look at after that. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. He is speaking to a new generation. The generation that sinned at Kadesh Barnea and did not put their faith in the Lord and his wondrous acts, but, but wavered before the enemies in the land. They're judged and they're done away with in the wilderness and a new generation is brought up and this is the generation Joshua speaks to. He says, put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The Israelites were as guilty as the Egyptians. The Israelites served the gods of the Egyptians. They were idolaters. They were to be subject to the angel of death as much as the Egyptians. Yet the Lord transacts with Israel through covenant, through a promise he made to Abraham to bring about a people a nation, and provide them a land. And the Lord is faithful to complete all his promises, and so he offers to them redemption. And even further, pictures in this, the redemption that is needed for all of us, as well as them, from this angel of death, from the judgment due because of our unrighteousness. McKay says that he does not act immediately against all does not mean that he does not have the intrinsic right to do so. Because of mankind's fall into sin, we are rebels with no rights before God. He may judge sinners at any moment by any means he considers appropriate, overthrowing cities such as Sodom and Gomorrah or annihilating the inhabitants of Jericho by an invading army. One of the things I want us to think about before we move on into this 10th plague and, our, and see the redemption within it is to consider this in light of our, uh, our own um, thoughts as it relates to the Lord and our unrighteousness. It may, it's not the old man firstborn. It's not the grown son firstborn. It's the child and the infant firstborn that we wrestle with here in this plague. It's the death of infants. It's, it's we add to this the taking of innocent life. But we must understand that term innocent and we must understand it as it relates relate, relationally to us and our acting upon our sin nature and corruption and as it relates to the Lord and his righteousness. 
furthermore, as it relates to the Lord and the righteousness availed for us in Christ. We affirm that Psalm 14 in verses 1 through 3, we affirm that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. But what about Psalm 51 and verse 5? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. How is it? King David can write these verses about himself in his mother's womb, speaking of his condemnation before he breathed a breath. Furthermore, what about in Romans 9, verses 11 through 13? For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is to be understood in light of that first transaction in Genesis 3 or Genesis uh, 1 through 3, where God transacts with Adam to proffer him an eternal state of bliss, of righteousness with the Lord, only that he would obey. And he falls. And he just doesn't fall as a as an example to us that we too shouldn't fall. But he falls as, as if our head was cut off. As if your head was detached from your body, so Adam fell. Scripture says, in Adam all die. In Adam all die. How do we know that infants are those who uh, are younger, who die in their young age or infancy, how do we know that they are subject to Adam's curse, at least in their bodies? Because they die. They don't live. They're subject to death. There isn't like, okay, they're beyond 12. Now they might die. No, the history of the world says there are, there are infants and there are children that have died. They are subject to Adam's curse. In Adam, all die. This condemnation upon the, this is condemnation upon all those are those who are represented in Adam. It's important that this eternal condemnation is upon all those represented in Adam. Why? Because we hold out the Lord being sovereign. The Lord is just. The Lord is righteous and merciful. And we'll see none of his people, none of his children fall away. So we affirm with our confession that scripture teaches that elect angels and elect infants, those dying in infancy or those dying without capacity, chosen by God, can be found in Christ. For just as David says that he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me, in the womb John the Baptist turned at the voice of Mary, at the presence even of Christ in the womb. For the Spirit of God was even given to him in that moment. In Adam all die, yet so also in Christ all will be made of life. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. 
I'll speak more about this idea later on, but many of you have suffered through miscarriages and other types of tragedies in your life, and I've had the opportunity to counsel some people in relation to this, even unbelievers who at work I've talked to. And my encouragement to them as they start talking about turning to God and, and trusting him is that they turn to God, or at least it seems like their intention is, I will turn to God so that this baby that died in my womb or didn't, didn't live uh, to uh, be able to profess faith will be saved. And their hope is that that baby or that child is in heaven. That's their hope. That's where their hope is. And that is a misplaced hope. It's not that they shouldn't desire it. It's not even that they shouldn't believe it. It's that they shouldn't hope in it. Their hope should be in the Lord, the giver of life. And their trust is in him to do all that is right, true, and good. For if they hope for something other than that, they're hoping for an idol for less than Christ. Not that it's easy, but that it is the truth. In Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will, have un I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this? Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he call, also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, put no conditions on your trust in the Lord. The Lord offers you unconditional grace, and you would turn that into conditional interaction well, Lord, if you give me this free gift, all I ask of you is that you save this person. You make, you allow me to see this person again or whatever it is, fill it in in whatever part of your life. It is the Lord who wills. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So we focus on that I. We focus on the Lord who will have mercy and we cast ourselves before him. And if we look back at Exodus 11 and we see that there was the death of the firstborn, yet here we see God's full judgment is actually restrained. Pharaoh had ordered the execution of all the male children in Israel Yet this judgment would fall only upon the firstborn. And yet we see in Exodus 12, 38, that when Israel goes up out of Egypt, they go up as a mixed multitude. So it is possible, and some assume, and I would tend to agree with them, that 
Some Egyptians heard the warning and heeded it, just like the ones that brought in their servants and their cattle and their livestock from the warning of hail. They were ones that obeyed the word of the Lord and took in, either took refuge in an Israelite house. I'm not sure the means by which they achieved it. But they took refuge in the Lord and they went up out of Egypt with the Israelites. What, what are the wonders of God's grace? Idolaters, oppressors, mockers of God offered salvation from this angel of death. The wonders of his mercy and grace is only seen in its fullness when we see the heinousness of our sin, the condemnation in Adam. For the full and our lack of participation in our wills in Adam's fall provides for us our full and lack of participation by our wills in Christ's work and completion of our salvation. See, kind of falling in Adam means that we only kind of need Christ. Yet if we're fully fallen from the moment of conception, then we're ever in need of a Savior. How this fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to provide a people and to provide them a land and deliver them out of Egypt should show the certainty of him making good on all his promises to us. And it's not because our hearts by nature are more tender, more responsive to the Holy Spirit than the hearts of unbelievers or the Egyptians. It is not that our, our wills are more pliable and less stubborn, nor is it because of any superior mental acumen which enabled us to see our need of a Savior. No, grace, distinguishing grace, sovereign grace is the discriminating cause. Then let us see to it that we give God all the glory for it. Trust him with all the circumstances of our lives. We too often fall into this interaction with God where we make promises, Lord, if, if you do this, I'll do that, whether subtly or explicitly. Lord, I really need this. If you can just make this happen, there's implied conditionality there. And when the blessing doesn't come the way you expect it, you assume in that interaction that the Lord is angry with you, that you have fallen from his grace. That's why I like songs like this one called For His Own Namesake. may be difficult to read. I've made the mistake that my blessing means the favor of God on my ways and thought every hardship his anger against me and cried out in darkness for grace. Now I know that his kindness is steadfast. He has anchored my soul in his peace. So that suffering is not just the pangs of my hunger to know the embrace of my king. No, that suffering is now just the pangs of my hunger to know the embrace of my king. And the chorus, still each morning and noon and an evening, I will trust my Lord. And bless his name, never seeking the gain but the giver. Let me repeat that. Never seeking the gain 
but the giver. So I love him for nothing but for his own sake. The Lord continually reminds the believer that their hope is to be in him, in the one who is merciful, in the one who is mercy, the one who is compassion, the one who is righteous. Not in the bare inheritance. Hear the word of the Lord in closing out of Psalm 130. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I should say not even infants. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, the effects of Adam's curse is too much to bear when we consider it in its most grievous circumstances. Yet by grace and the work of your spirit, it's in those grievous circumstances that your mercy shines forth. For as your word has testified that you have elected a people and will save every one, even those who may have died in infancy or before their ability to have cognition. So is it sure, Lord, that you have saved us apart from our will. It was by your work that you made us willing. We are in need of the same grace that an infant needs. What wonders and mercy there is in Christ. who is a better Adam, for he has not failed, and he will bring us to himself. For you have promised that we may enjoy you forever. We thank you and praise you for such wonders. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.